0: for the name of Jesus, and if you know Him, you're more thankful for that name, and you grow in thankfulness for that name as you realize just what Jesus has done in our lives. I'd like you to take your Bible and look at Luke chapter number 2 again this morning. Remember, we are taking a book, a break from the book of John and spending a few weeks looking in the book of Luke, particularly at four, what I've calling Nativity Songs, and uh, we are uh, dealing with Christmas season right now, and um, you hear different things in different places, and all sorts of different uh, things going on in different people's lives, and we're visiting family, or seeing family we haven't seen in a while, and uh, Christmas means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And we mentioned last week in particular that um, one of the ways, no one really starts Christmas, like uh, the president doesn't say, here's the start of Christmas Day, and Congress doesn't rule, you know, November 30th as the first day of the Christmas season. It just kind of just starts happening. And uh, for some people, it is earlier than others. Uh, for some of us, it may be August or July that we start in our Christmas uh, decorating and our Christmas uh lifestyle of some sort. Uh, we, we said last week there's a lot of different things that signify sort of the start of the Christmas season. We said you'll be driving around and you'll see lights up or you'll be in a store and you'll see advertisement or you go into Walmart on July 5th and uh, they've changed their holiday decorations or whatever uh, it may be that sort of signify. But the other thing that we said we start hearing music that has to do with Christmas songs and Uh, we uh, confided in each other last week that there are some Christmas songs that are great and that we enjoy and we like. And then there's some Christmas songs I I mentioned last week, and some of you thought I was teasing. I did it this week. I walked out of a store. I walked into a store and a song was playing, and I walked in the entrance and out the exit to let that song finish because it always gets stuck in my head. And uh, singing about last Christmas and this Christmas and Uh, all of it just gets stuck in my head. So we have these different songs that we sort of associate with Christmas. And we have been singing these Christmas carols uh, in our morning services. And man, some of them are just deep as we sang... Hark the Herald Angels Sing this morning, you you have to know your Bible in some ways to understand uh, some of what that's talking about, coming and redeeming as a second Adam and setting our human race the way that it should be, and and just the uh, value that we hear in these Christmas carols uh, doctrinally kind of points our minds toward Christ, not just that He came as a baby once, but that he is coming again as a risen king. And that much like Israel waited for 3,000 or so years for him to come the first time, we now, and should in anticipation and with excitement, wait for him again. Uh, Looking back historically at the fact that Jesus came for Israel, how did they not see it? How were they not excited? How did they lack faith in a way? But in in a way, we do the same thing today. We have been told that Jesus is coming and he's coming again and that we will see him and that he's going to set this earth and this universe right as it should be. But often we live like this is the important time and that uh, this is the life that really matters and we sort of forget that we are waiting now for Jesus again and so we talked about these songs and there's four particular songs last week we looked at Mary's song that she sang when she found out she was going to bear as a child the Son of God, and how she said, I magnify the Lord. And we said particularly, a couple things that she magnified God for was that He was mindful of her. He said, He has thought of me. He has found favor in me. He is mindful, and He thinks on her. And then that He's mighty. He's, he's the only one strong enough to save, and that He was merciful, and that He would come uh, as a child, that He would come as a Savior to save. And so we said that Mary's song should point our hearts toward the fact that Jesus or that Christ, that God is mindful of us, that He thinks of us. And that not just that He thinks of us, but that He is mighty enough to work in our lives and merciful enough to do it in our lives. This week, we're going to look at a second song, a nativity song, that is kind of based around the birth of Christ in Luke chapter number one. And we'll look down uh, toward the end of the chapter in just a moment. And this song is written by a man named Zacharias. And now, I may say a few things here and there today and miss say that name because I have found out that uh, Microsoft Word wants to correct the word Zacharias to every other word but Zacharias. So when I'm typing it in, it put Zachariah, it changed it to Zacchae one time, changed it to Zacchaeus one time. So in a moment, Zacchaeus, the father of John the Baptist, may pop up. I think I got most of them straight, uh, but it wants to correct it all the time. So I'm going to try to say Zacharias every time this morning, but is the song of Zacharias. And how do we know it's a song? It says that it's a prophecy, and we'll see that, and it was if you look back at how it's written, some of you may have a Bible that is like this. Just instead of doing it verse by verse in two columns, it puts it just sort of in one long narrative looking uh, verse. That's the way that I like my Bible to look. And if you get to this portion, you'll realize it is written in poem form because it was written as a poem or as a song. Every verse is a line of poetry as Zacharias is speaking. And what is it that he's going to say? And before we get into this, well, let's read it, and then we'll we'll take a kind of an overview of uh, what it is and how it is that Zacharias is dealing with these things. For time's sake, we won't read all of the beginning of his story, but uh, if you want to look down at uh, verse number um, ten and eleven, we will start there. Zacharias was a priest, and he was. Uh, doing his priestly duty. He is the husband of Elizabeth, who is we know from last week, is going to be the mother of John the Baptist. And so this angel comes to tell Zacharias what was about to befall he and his wife. And if you will, look at verse number 11. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. If you were a priest and you were doing this duty and you saw an angel, this was typically not the time you wanted to see an angel or you wanted a vision in this way from God. A lot of times it would cause fear in their hearts. And so you see that he fears. It says, But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John." And he gives him sort of an introduction to what he's going to be. The same way the angel told Mary what Jesus would be, he tells him what his son would be. He says, and thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth, for he shall be great, notice this, in the sight of the Lord. We know that John the Baptist was not great in rule. He didn't sit on a throne. But we know that later in Jesus' ministry, he says there's no man that's impacted the world the way that John the Baptist, or that John did. And so he says he, was, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. Isn't that a great testimony? And Wouldn't it be great? I'm thinking about my own kids, and I can't imagine being told something. They're going to help point people to God. Verse 17, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias and turn uh, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's what his son is going to do. He's going he's not going to be the Messiah, but he's going to help prepare people's hearts. Hey, the Messiah is coming. Remember, for 400 years, they haven't heard a word from God. So it's sort of to try to wake them up and make sure they're listening. kind of as as though they were asleep. You you should not start, I'm not going to say you don't, but you should not start into a deep conversation with your spouse straight out of sleep, okay? Like if you're walking and they're snoring, well, ladies, it may be a good time to walk in and say, hey, I'm going to go do these things and I'm going to buy this and I'm going to hire somebody to fix this thing that you haven't fixed and we're going to do all these things. Is that okay? Yeah, yep, 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 fine. And, you know, they go back to sleep. But that's sort of what they're doing, that's John, what John the Baptist is doing for Israel, he's waking them up so their eyes are open to be able to see Jesus as he comes. And look at verse 18, and Zacharias said unto the angel, what was his response? Whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife well stricken in years. Notice how he didn't call his wife an old woman. That's probably smart. But notice it says, the angel answered him. He basically says to the angel, how do I know that this is going to happen? We are old people. We, we don't have kids at our age. We have grandkids. And we know that Elizabeth had not been able to have children to this point. And so he's just baffled and shocked and doubting in his heart. And look at verse number 19. And the angel answered, answering said unto him, I am Gabriel, that stand in the presence of God and am sent to speak unto thee, and to show thee these glad tidings. And behold, thou shalt be dumb, that just simply means you won't be able to speak, not be able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed, because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. And so it is in these interesting, this interesting setting that this song of Zacharias is born. It is not that he is in the temple praising. It is not that he is having some joyous revelation from God, though he did. His song is born out of doubt. His song is born out of a time. We know that Mary was, uh, Elizabeth was a few months or a few weeks along being expecting, and now, really, Zacharias, for the most part, is probably going to be nine months, eight months, seven months without being able to speak. And some of you women are thinking, that would be great. And uh, he goes all this amount of time with no speaking. And can you imagine how your life would change? You have a little note in your bulletin there, and you can read sometime today or this week. It kind of tries to put that a little bit in perspective. Can you imagine going that long in that exciting time? Because now Zacharias can't speak, and who knocks on the door? Mary knocks on the door. And Mary comes and tells Elizabeth, I'm going to have a child too, And I'm going to have this child of God, and he's going to be the Messiah. And Zacharias, this priest, is looking, and he can't speak. He can't say anything. In fact, we know that he's excited. Look at uh, what it says in verse... Go back to, I'll flip my page here. Let's go back to verse number 21. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak unto them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned unto them and remained speechless. So he's excited. He calls them to him and can't relay any of it to them. And it's sort of his punishment in a way for his, the doubt of his heart. And so for months, he watches all of this happen. He watches Mary come and stay for a number of months and then go. He watches Elizabeth begin to grow, even in her old age, and her figure becomes that of an expecting mother, and he is just taken back by what is going on. And people come to start visiting, and word gets rumored. Can you imagine some, you know, pe- people that know Zacchaeus, the other older men in the town that come to talk to Zacchaeus and say, "What in the world?" is going on, and he can't talk, he just can't say anything, he can't explain how this happened, and imagine the trouble that caused, but it made him watch, and it made him look, and it made him see the work of God, and after all of this time, all of a sudden, he can speak, and we know that it's actually, John has been born, his son is eight days old, and they say, we're going to name him Zachariah, Zachariah is after his dad, and he says, no, 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 he's still trying to motion. No, you can't name him that. He said, well, what are we going to name him? He takes a tablet and he writes on it, John. And at that moment, he begins to be able to speak. God lifts that from him and he can speak. And when he speaks, he speaks this song of praise. And I wonder in our own lives, if we took a moment, we probably aren't going to take nine months and not speak. But if we took a few moments each day and thought about the work of God, Praise would probably come from our lips, too, when we we would choose to speak. So what did he say? Look at verse number 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been uh, since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we being, that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him in all the days of our life. And thou, child, he's speaking to his own child here, shall be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins, and through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the dayspring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace." Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time together. Lord, we ask that you'd help us to understand this passage this morning. Give us clarity of thought. Help us to understand what it means for us. There's a lot of things here that pertain to Israel and Zacharias. And when we think about uh, David and Moses and prophets and their enemies and them being captive and Abraham, we may initially feel like this is just something historical, but there is something here for us to learn, And we ask that you would help us and strengthen us in our minds and hearts to do that. We pray that you would uh, place us in the cross and into the mindset of Christ, that we would be humble before you and that what we do learn and, when, and the ways that we do grow is not of ourselves, but it is only of your spirit. And we pray this in your precious name. Amen. I want to take a moment before we jump fully into this particular song. It won't take us actually very long to talk about the three or four things in the song that really point toward our own lives. But to really understand what Zacharias is saying here, you sort of have to step back for a moment and get a very broad, big, sort of a wide angle lens view of what is going on when he writes this particular song. When I go hunting, there's a particular tool that has kind of come, uh, kind of grown the last few years. You have Google Maps, and we have GPS, different things, but there's uh, an app called Onyx Hunting. That's not a promotional. That's just what it's called, okay? It's called Onyx Hunting, and it shows you property lines, and it gives you kind of a Google satellite view of things, but it gives you, shows you where property lines are so you don't trespass on accident or hopefully on purpose and you're going through these different things, it shows you topography, it shows you hill elevation, it shows you where water is uh, in in particular places. If you really zoom in, you can kind of see what kind of trees are growing there. Is it more pine trees? Is it oak trees? Is it kind of uh, more hardwoods and that kind of thing? You see where fields are. And, And the way it does, it helps you navigate what the easiest way to get from place to place is. There's a plot of public land that I hunted on early in the season, and there's a big stretch of it for about, I don't know, uh, it, it's probably a half a mile long, and it is thick, just mangrove kind of briars. And if you just walked in there trying to hunt one day and headed into that, you'd, you'd never go through it. You'd never make it. You'd just give up because it would take you five hours to walk the 500 yards that you need to go. But if you go at it from the big view from over top, you can see that that is there And plan your route around those things and understand some of the detail. You can understand what the elevation is like and where there may be a valley and sort of plan those things as you're going. And because you have the big view from overhead, you're able to navigate the details a little bit better. And the same is true with our view of the Bible and our view of Scripture. Sometimes we can jump right into a passage and it almost is like jumping into the briars. And it's difficult to move through if we don't have the bigger top side view to be able to help us navigate the details that are there. And this passage in particular may be one of those that we need to kind of step back and see what is this all talking about. If you came today and you don't know much of what is, these things are referring to, and if you were just kind of walking into this blindly, you may look at verse 69 and think uh, the horn of salvation from the house of his servant David. What is he praising him for that for? And we'll talk a little bit about that. And you see this man named Abraham, this this oath that is sworn to Abraham, and we may know as Christians some of the general things or the promises that were made to the fathers or a spake out of the mouth of his holy prophet since the world began and his holy covenant, and so when we're thinking about it, it's, it would be easy to be like, well, he's, he's just excited because this is a big Israel thing. This is for Jewish people. This is for their nationality and these different things, but it's for God's people, and if you step back and get kind of the big view, you'll understand. What some of the details are, and be able to navigate that a little bit better. Let me give you an example of this before we move on. Look at Luke twenty-four very quickly, just as a challenge, as part of the message today, to challenge us to have a wide and broad scoped view of scriptures. It helps us understand. There were songs today that we sang, and we don't have the general knowledge of some of those things scripturally. The song may mean nothing to us, but if you do. It may make that song come alive to you and how you understand it. And the same is true of Scripture. You can read a few verses and it may mean nothing to you. But one day you may back out and have a view of that reference or those verses from another portion of Scripture. And it may totally make that passage come alive. Look, if you would, at Luke 24. This is after Jesus has died. Two of his disciples are walking along a road to Emmaus. They're returning home full of doubt, convinced that Jesus, in a way, had tricked them somehow, or he wasn't who he said he was. And Jesus comes alongside them and begins to talk to them. And he says in verse 17, What manner of communications are these that you have one to another as you walk and are sad? They didn't recognize him, they didn't see who he was. But he says, Why are you sad? They said, well, concerning what has happened. He says, well, what has happened of Jesus of Nazareth? Well, what about Jesus of Nazareth? And look at verse 21. It says, but we trusted, past tense, that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. So he says, he he has died, he has gone, and he did all these amazing things. And we just don't understand how it all ended this way. Look at how Jesus reacts to that. Look at verse 25. then he said unto them... O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And notice what Jesus does. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so Jesus really gives them, you can go back to Luke chapter 1 there, Jesus gives these people this, this big Bible study. And he says, hey, all of the Old Testament, all the stuff Moses wrote, all the prophets, all that Psalms, it's still about me. It's about Christ. Jesus, the Bible, is about the good news of Jesus. And the gospel of Jesus is the key to understanding any of the Bible in the first place. In fact, when you look at a lot of the Old Testament prophecies, and we've been talking about some of those in our morning classes, and the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, some of them fulfilled very literally, that he was born in Bethlehem. But even some of the Old Testament prophecies that are more figurative are filled not in a literal sense, but in a Christ sense. They're fulfilled by Christ, like the temple. He says, You raise up the temple and three, or tear down the temple, I'll raise it up in three days. It's fulfilled in Christ, in his image. And we have another one of those in Luke chapter one, and we see it there in verse 69 it says, And hath raised up an horn of salvation. You say, What in the world? Is he talking about? Well, for time's sake, we won't go there. But Psalm 18, 2, it says, The Lord is my strength, my light, my buckler, my shield, my mighty fortress. And in there, he says, and he is the horn of my salvation. What does that mean? It's very representative of like a ram's horn to protect, to shield. And you imagine a, a goat or a ram that kind of backs itself to a tree and sort of pushes its way out and kind of breaks the things that it needs to in front of it to free itself, and it's giving us that picture that Christ is the one that is strong enough to barrel His way through, to push through, and to give us salvation. And so that's just a little side note as we begin, a long introduction to a short message, that it helps to understand the Bible as a whole, to understand the Bible in detail, that Christ is the key, and just as He's the key to all the Bible, He's the key to this passage as well. Sometimes at Christmas time, we can kind of take our eyes off of what it really is about and begin thinking about things that are kind of trivial and sentimental. And though those things have their place, they may be good. Can can you imagine we, we... talk some about that some people may attend church just seldom or they may come on a certain day of the year and some people come on Christmas Day in particular and that's the only time somebody came to church. How confusing in a way that may be to not have the whole scope of the whole Bible as a whole and then come to church on Christmas Day and hear about this child that's born to a virgin and laid in a manger, and we kind of picture camels and sheep there, and they're shepherds, and they're singing, and then you know, they may leave and think, that's why I didn't go the other 51 weeks of the year. I have no clue what's going on. And sometimes we can take our eyes off of Christ individually as Christians, and we're so baffled by life, and we're so baffled by what's going on in our own lives, because we're not looking at the broad... Big picture that Christ is still working in us. And though the details are hard and difficult to navigate sometimes, Christ is still guiding. And I want us to think about that as we look at these. I want you to think about the fact that in the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. In the Gospels, Jesus is revealed. In Acts, Jesus is preached. In the Epistles, Jesus is explained. And in the book of Revelation, Jesus is now expected, and that's where we stand. And we can look toward these things with joy because Jesus fulfills all these things. I want you to think for a moment what Zacharias is writing, the, the heart that Zacharias has as he's writing this. And he says, to deli- as he says, to deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we might serve him without fear. Think about how long Israel had suffered in some way or another. God calls his people from Abraham and from his sons, and then they are taken into captivity in a way. They move there, but then eventually they grow to the place, and they're taken into captivity by Egypt. Egypt represses them, and I'm sure that as Zacharias is writing this, he's thinking back to that time that they are set free from Egypt by the blood of a lamb and the Passover feast that would one day point to a better lamb in Jesus Christ and his coming that Zacharias is now talking about. Think about the excitement as Zacharias is writing this. Yeah, yeah. we remember when we were set free from Egypt by this other little lamb and this Passover and all these different things. And now one is coming, the one, the one that all these things are pointing to. He is coming. And then they're taken into the promised land. And there, as they normally did, they kind of bumble through some things and they mess up. And they're taken into captivity again and again. And there's judges and there's battles and there's fightings and there's chaos And now Zacharias is looking back saying the one to bring us peace and fix all those things is going to come. And then there's the Assyrian Empire and the Assyrians as they come. And then the Medo-Persians come in and they're taken captive and they're split all throughout the world. And then that kind of ends and they kind of make their way back in the time of Nehemiah. And they're rebuilding Jerusalem and just, just pain and sorrow and then joy with promise. And then pain and sorrow with joy and then promise, and just the emotion that would build. We, we think that as Americans, we are proud to be Americans, and we are proud of our heritage and our 400-year history. Imagine as Zacharias is writing this with 3,000-some years of history all rolled into this, the emotion that he has from this. So what does this have to do with it? Well, now they're set free, and then they're taken captive by the Greek. And then now they're sort of allowed to live as they want. But then the Romans crush it, come in and they kind of crush things and make them a statehood. And they are not free to serve as they want and to live for their God as they want. And they're just waiting for this promised one to come. And now Zacharias is the one that's told he's coming. And now... The praise of his heart built out of the darkness and the anxiousness of all of this time comes. And what does he want to emphasize after all of those things? First words of songs are pretty important, aren't they? If I were to say, in fact, I looked up a few and I just typed in, I just Googled famous first words of songs. I'll do some Christmas ones and some other ones. You know, I see trees of green and red roses too. And you could, I won't make you, but you could hum the rest of it. Some of the more popular ones that it says, I've got the world on a string, unforgettable, that's what you are, from the lakes of Minnesota to the hills of Tennessee. I was born by a river in this little old tent, and just like this river, I've been running ever since, and uh, hello darkness, my old friend, and you get into Christmas ones, and I'm taking some of you on a tour way back. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. Have you ever noticed most Christmas songs are named what their first couple words are? I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. Jingle bells. Of course, you know what that is. Hark the herald angels sings. Maybe when you don't sing sweet. Oh, lullaby uh, and low a lullaby as angels sing. Amen. Well, Mary's song last week had big first words. My soul magnifies the Lord. Why? Because he thinks about me because he is mighty. Zacharias has important first words, too. Notice if you would in verse 68. He says, Blessed be the Lord God. Much like Mary says, I magnify God for who He is, Zacharias says, Oh, I bless the Lord. After all that time without speaking, because of a work of God that he did in his heart, he didn't grumble, he didn't complain, he didn't set straight all the arguments that he wanted to have, but wasn't able to because he couldn't speak. He's not concerned about anything. He says, Blessed be the Lord. Our lives should be the same. What do people think? If your life was a song, what would the first words be? If I were to say your coworker or your uh, friend or your husband, your wife, your child, your grandchildren, I said, write a song about your parents. Write a song about so-and-so. What would the first line be? I had hope that it would be something about they love their God. They love Jesus Christ. They bless the Lord. Uh, The the song of our life should start with blessing toward our God. And so let's layer these two songs together. Mary says, I magnify God because He is mindful, He thinks about me, and because He is mighty. And because He's mindful and He's mighty, now we have another one. Why is Zacharias blessing the Lord? Notice, if you would, the end of verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He hath visited in other words, he has come. Mary says, my magnify God, because he thinks of me, and he is mighty, and he loves me. And because he's mighty, and because he's been thinking about me, now Zachariah kind of continues Mary's song and says, and he has come. Because there's no one else that could do what he's about to do. Because there's no one else that when he thought, when God thought about me and when he was mindful of me, he didn't think, I need to send someone else. I need to fix this. I need to destroy this part of the world. I need to, he says, I need to go. I need to be present with them. I need to be born in the form of a man and come as Jesus Christ to save this earth because no one else can. And Zacharias says, blessed be God because he is coming. And we can say, blessed be Christ this Christmas because He came. Amen. Because when He thought of me, and in His might and in His mercy, He decided and knew this was best, that I come to earth, that I fix their sin, that I work in their lives. And so when we think about Christmas, it is not just about the lights, it is not just about the memories, it is not just about family. Though Those are important what we really should be celebrating is the fact that God Almighty of the universe has come. And because He has come, there are certain things that have come with Him. He did not come like family, nothing bad with family, but He did not come as family just to stay for a little while. He did not come like we do at Thanksgiving to watch football. He did not come to eat turkey. He did not come... To just be, he came with a purpose. And Zacharias is going to label out why he came. Notice what, if you would, the first thing. There's four of them quickly and we'll be finished. Notice why he, he says, Bless the Lord for he has come and what? Number one, redemption. Number one, he has come to redeem. He has come with a set purpose. He has not come to figure it out. He didn't come to earth to say, how can we fix this? This was all part of his plan from the beginnings of the world before the world was formed. God had planned this all along. It is not that we sinned and then God says, oh no, what can we do? And he broke out his stenopad and started writing it all down and calculating how many sins can be covered by this amount of blood and how much could this be? Well, that's not going to work. He had planned it all along. And Jesus says, when I come, I am coming not just to speak, not just to talk, not just to give, not just to do. I am coming to fix this all. I am coming to redeem. And Zacharias, the first words out of his mouth, after all of this time of darkness, his personal time where he can't speak, all the time of Israel's confusion and their bitterness and their captivity. After all of that, he says, blessed be God that he is coming to redeem. Redeem means to purchase to save or to pull out from something in bo- that you are in bondage to. A Jesus, through His blood, redeems us from our sins. But not just from our sins. Jesus redeems us from the futility of a meaningless life without God. Without God, life is meaningless. And not just without any God or any some, just some religion, but without the God and Father of Jesus Christ. Life means nothing. And he says he has come to redeem, and that's when he references this horn of salvation that can pound away and destroy sin from our lives and forgive us and get us free of guilt and save us to serve him. And he says, I can redeem not just Israel, but I can redeem the whole world. I think it's interesting that, he, that Luke includes Zacharias' song here, because there's a lot of reference to Jewish things, isn't there? Abraham, David, Moses, there's reference to the people and captives. You know who the only gospel author that was a Gentile was? It was Luke. Matthew, Mark, and John, they're all Jewish. Luke is a Gentile, but he sees the importance of this. Why? Because now Luke realizes he's not just coming to save a nation. He's not just coming to save a people. He is coming to save all. And He is powerful and He will redeem and He will suppress this sinful rebellion. He will fix what is wrong in our lives through faith and the grace of Christ. The second thing, look at verse number 72. He has come to redeem and He has come, look at verse number 72, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant. He has come to redeem and he has come because he remembers. Because, as we mentioned, this was all part of his plan. It, there was no mess up. There was no mistake. All the way back when God made his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, now Jesus has finally come to fulfill all of those things and to fix and finish all of those promises. Aren't you good, glad that God is a God that keeps his promises? A God that remembers. Have you ever forgotten something because of a circumstance? Um, there's a lot of different things going on in our ministries and different things. And, uh, you know, you'll be walking around here. Oh, I got to do this. And then, you know, our buildings are old or some, some parts of them are 50, some years old and something will break. And so we got, I got to go, we got to go help take care of that. And then I forget what I was doing in the first place. And then that doesn't get done. Oh, I was on the phone. Oh, they're still on hold. That's not good. You know, and uh, two hours later, and we kind of forget these different things. Have you ever done something with your child and something that your child does, let's say that, my children, since yours are perfect. Your child does something. Your child does something and it makes you forget what you were going to be doing and now you're dealing with whatever bad thing that they did. Well, we, we have done that, right? Aren't you glad God does not work that way? Aren't you glad that God wasn't like, I promised to send a Messiah and then the world got so bad, he's like, whoa, Ed is terrible down there. And he's so distracted by sin that he just, for some reason, doesn't sin. Or he's so angered by our rebellion, that he chooses not to keep his promise. But here he says, I praise God that he's coming to redeem because he remembers that he promised us a long, long time ago. And you think about your own life this morning. Aren't you glad that God has redeemed you and that each and every day he remembers you? And in the sorrow of your heart and in the difficult times of life, he still remembers I think about a song a hymn writer wrote. It says, Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. When we sing that next time, picture God drawing out this beautiful portrait of grace. It says, Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace then that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God spanned through Calvary and mercy there was and grace was great and it was free because God remembered His promise. I'm going to lead you to the third thing. Look at verse 77. They're all ours this morning. I don't typically do that on purpose, but when the Bible gives them to us and ours, we'll try to keep them there. Look at verse 77. To give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. Remission, simply by definition, is the cancellation of debt. And God has come, he says. Jesus has come. Zacharias, speaking of this coming Messiah, this one has come to cancel your debt. What have you got a note from your, not your home, from the bank's home that you live in? Tomorrow. And it, Some of you have gotten that notice, and, and it is said, you're paid and done. And that, I'm sure that is a good feeling. I'm a little ways off from that. But it is done, it is canceled, it is gone. And he says, Jesus has come not to save you, then enslave you. Not to free you, to then force you into things that he wants for his own demands. Though we do serve him out of that salvation, God has come, Jesus has come. He does not act toward us as a brutal Lord, but he cancels and forgives that debt and he sets us free. And when we sing of Christmas, we're not singing just of a baby, we're not just singing of a manger. It's not about cows and it's not about camels. It's not even about angels. It is about the fact that Christ came to redeem because God remembered his promise and he has canceled your debt. And when the world looks to us as Christians at a Christmas time, it is not about how well we have decorated our house, though I have decorated my house. It is, I have lights on the outside and lights on the inside, and my kids are putting lights anywhere they can find them. That is a good thing. It is not how many Christmas songs you know. It's not about how well we bake. It is about the fact that Jesus has redeemed us, that he has set us free, and it leads us to the last thing. I added this R because it's really a bunch of words combined into one. God has redeemed, God has remembered, He has given remission for sins, and in the end, He revolutionizes our lives. And Where do we see that? Look, if you would, in verse number 78. In forgiving their sins, it leads right in verse 78, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring, that simply means the sun, It's figuratively, whereby the sun from on high hath visited us. They were living in darkness and, and spiritually. Their God had not spoken to them in so long. And now he says, I feel the warm spiritual rays of the light of the sun coming over the horizon. And that super long night of doubt is over. Have you ever had that feeling? And God works in your life that way. A season of doubt, a season of night, and a season of darkness. But he says, I'm not just here to take the darkness away. Look at verse 79. But to give light unto them that sit in darkness. And notice this. And in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This world, have you ever noticed? this world tries to run everywhere but death. It's the one thing that is guaranteed, and it's the one thing that we don't want. It's the one thing that makes us uncomfortable. But notice his phrase there, it says, the shadow of death. He doesn't say, he's going to guide our feet in just death. It's a shadow of death. Can shadows hurt? Can shadows harm? Has a shadow ever slapped you in the face? If it has, it's weird. For most of us, no. It hasn't. Because he says, death is a shadow of sorrow. And though it is uncertainty, and though there is problem, and though there is heartbreak, it cannot destroy. And this Jesus will guide us into peace. Look back at verse 74, 75 is closed. That he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. And so the message of this Song of Christmas that Zacharias writes is God redeems because God remembers. And in remembering, he has given remission and forgiveness. He has canceled your sins. And in all three of those, he now has decided to change your life, to let you live like no one else on this earth can live, to let you live free of doubt, free of a guilty conscience, When you go to work, you realize that if you lose your job tomorrow, your life does not end because your Savior does not end. When you go to the doctor this week and they give you some bad diagnosis that your life does not end, that it is a shadow of death because God has given light in the darkness. And when you sorrow in your heart and you grieve that it is just a shadow and you do not grieve the way others grieve but without hope, that you grieve with the hope of Christ and that when we are tempted to sin this week, when we go to our jobs, when we go to our places that we live, when I am tempted to sin, I don't have to give in. And it's not that I can be like, I'm not going to give in, but I'm not going to have as much fun. I'm not going to have the pleasure. I'm not going to have the enjoyment of it. I can be content that God's way is best because he changes and revolutionizes who I am as a person. If I trust in him, he turns our lives inside out. He creates a living paradox in us. We don't make sense. We shouldn't. Think about these words and we'll finish. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch, a bum like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. And like these Israelites in darkness, I was blind, but now I can see. It was grace that first taught my heart to fear, and then grace relieved my fears. My fears relieved how precious did that grace appear the hour that I first believed. If you have this morning believed, Christmas should mean something very different to you. It's not about presents and lights and candy and moments and memories. It is about the fact that your God has redeemed you, remembered you. He has canceled your debt and changed your life. And now he is calling you to serve and wait patiently for his return. Oh, perfect redemption, the purchase of blood. To every believer, the promise of God. The vilest offender who truly believes in that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. And like Zacharias, we are thankful this morning for his grace. Lord, we love you. And we fall so short of living the way that you really intend for us to live. We are so caught up sometimes with the physical things of this world. What can I earn? What can I have? We're caught up with the relationships of people. What did they say? What do they think? We're caught up with our physical lives. How do I feel? And Where do we go? But you have just asked us to point our eyes toward this dawning sun of hope in Jesus Christ. And I pray that this Christmas as a church we would look and see that you have redeemed us. And that is a mighty work. That you have remembered us that you think of us each day and that in our lives we can live personally with you in a relationship with you because you have canceled our debt and you don't hold it over our heads and you have desired to work and change our lives not just our behavior not just our performance but our hearts and our souls and our minds and make us unlike anything we could ever be on our own and i pray that this morning you would do that work in us And we pray this in your precious and holy name. Amen.